All right. Why don't you turn to Philippians chapter 3, please. Philippians chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 4 through 7. The message entitled, The Righteousness of Man. Paul established that we are to rejoice in the righteousness of God that he has provided for us in Jesus Christ and both in nothing but in him. Now Paul deals with the standard of righteousness the Judaizers were demanding. And so Paul provides an autobiography of his past life before Christ regarding his righteousness to stand justified before God in verses 4 through 7. Let me read here. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I am more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. And so this autobiography of Paul's past life before accepting Christ regards the righteousness to stand justified before God. That's how he used to think. It's characterized by three things. First, we have the confession of Paul in contrast to the righteousness of the Judaizers in verse 4. Secondly, the credentials of Paul in comparison to the righteousness of the Judaizers in verse 5 and 6. And thirdly, the conclusion of Paul in conjunction to the righteousness of the Judaizers. He hits it from every angle. It's an incredible section of scripture here. Let's begin here with the confession of Paul in contrast to the righteousness of the Judaizers. Verse 4. Notice the Apostle Paul affirmed that he was able and qualified to meet the qualifications of the Judaizers in the flesh. Listen to his words. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. Paul is not contradicting himself from what he said in verse 3. He said, we are the circumcision who worships God in spirit through the new birth there in the first part of three. The circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Remember, we said that in Colossians 2.11. He said also in verse 3 that we rejoice in Christ Jesus in his atoning work to present us justified and righteous before God. Imparted righteousness. That's what it is. In Christ. Not imputed righteousness for sanctification. Okay? In, in, imputed righteousness is the righteousness for justification. Once you're born again, he gives you imparted righteousness for sanctification to live it out. So the justification he's talking about is imputed righteousness. 
The righteousness of Christ is placed upon you. God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He said also we have no confidence in the flesh, meaning the abilities to produce anything before God at the end of verse 3. Now he's not contradicting any of this. Paul now, in verse 4, takes the same word flesh and used it for the earthly righteousness the Judaizers were trusting to be justified before God and demanding it of the Gentiles as well as the Jews who wanted to be Christians. He used the word flesh, sarks, for works or deeds man brings forth for this justification before God. The word sars can be used for sin nature and for sins, but the context here is the works that are brought before God to present the man justified. Now, be they moral or ethical or whatever it may be, it's not accepted for justification. There's nothing we can do to be justified in Christ Jesus. Jesus told Nicodemus, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. John 3, 6. In other words, when a man and a woman come together, they can only produce another little sinner. No woman's ever produced an innocent child, a sinless child. The flesh, human fallen nature, can only produce evil. It has a capacity for good by the grace of God because the image of God is not completely obliterated, but our bent is towards darkness. It doesn't take long to find that out when you bring that baby home. He literally says, though having myself confidence in the flesh, it's emphatic in the Greek. He said that if that was the standard of God, then he also might have confidence in the accomplishments of his past life as a Jew to measure up and meet the demands of the Judaizer for justification. The word there, confidence, means reliance or trust. You're depending on this to present you before God. You're depending on these things to be accepted of God. He says that if, if this was the real standard, that I could also depend on them. I could also have this confidence, but, but it's not the standard. That was not the righteousness God was requiring or accepting for justification. So he had no confident reliance or trust in his works. Now, as we go on, this is... How he used to think, not how he thinks now. Notice the Apostle Paul declared that if anyone has confidence in their outward righteousness that the flesh can produce, he says, he much more. Listen to his words. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Paul revealed the assessment was man-based, not God-based. Here's the problem always. 
The word think means to be of an opinion. It refers to one's judgment of himself. Now, the judgment of myself is only good if I measure it to God's word. If the judgment about myself or of myself is based on man's standards, then it's irrelevant. It's worthless. Because man's standards are far inferior to God's. The word confidence, again, means to be introduced or induced by one's own persuasion of the human standard. Outward works of the flesh to be what? To be justified for God. So all these things that men and women do and they present them as this is why I am a Christian. This is why I am right with God. The tense here is a participle present active ongoing continuously. Their confidence. They actually believe this to be so. Paul the Apostle in 2 Corinthians 10, 12 says, For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. The true standard is God. Are you ready for it? Perfection. Any takers? Man doesn't have that high standard. The reliance of their persuasion is the works of the flesh. Flesh works, if you will. Flesh, the word socks again, is man at work apart from God. This means whatever it whether it be man at his lowest and worst in sin or man at his highest in the highest moral and ethical thing. If God's not in it, it's works of man. It can't, it can't be used for justification. Now, there's a difference. We don't want to say that there isn't between someone of doing evil in someone who's moral. But before God, for justification, whatever is from man apart from God, is totally rejected by God. Paul revealed, if what the flesh can produce outwardly was their confidence, then he had greater confidence over them. The word more there means to be greater in degree or more readily. The life of Paul as a Jew was impressive by every standard. He will give a list of his credentials and accomplishment in the next two verses. He could put himself side by side with any of the Judaizers and surpass them. He smokes them. <laughs> You remember um, in Luke 18, 9 through 14, Jesus spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, mark that well, God I thank you that I'm not like other men, 
extortioners, unjust, adulterers. Or even as this tax collector, because there was a tax collector ways off. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. See, the world teaches us just the opposite. Some people believe because they are religious, they're justified and accepted by God. They say um, they love God. And they pray to God. They say they go to church religiously. They say they help any person they can. They say they give money to their church. As if that is what allows them to be justified before God. Listen to um, Titus 3, 5. It says, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saves us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Only by the justification of Jesus Christ, believing and accepting his death and his resurrection as the atoning payment for my sin. Other people believe because they have been baptized that they are Christians and will be in heaven. Those baptized as infants, though they made no decision themselves to repent of their sins, believe this. They've been taught this. Those who were baptized as teens or adults yet don't go to church or know the Bible, but they did not repent of their sins. Yet they believe they'll be in heaven. Those who were baptized and go to church and are involved and say they are born again, but they are worldly. And they live in the world for the flesh and they think they will be in heaven. Baptism without repentance is worthless, ladies and gentlemen. Listen to Romans 6, 4. Therefore, we were buried with him, meaning Christ, through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. So water baptism is symbolic of death with Christ. It's a public confession of what has happened already in my heart through the new birth, accepting the justification. The water does not make me born again. The water does not make me a Christian. The water does not forgive any sin. Water baptism is not even required for salvation. We teach it. We practice it. It's one of the sacraments, if you will. 
but it doesn't complete salvation. You are complete in Christ Jesus and Him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In Him you are complete. Colossians 2, 9 and 10. If you never got water baptized but you repented of your sin were born again, you are saved, you will be in heaven. We practice water baptism but you cannot add anything to the atoning grace of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 3.21 confirms what I just said about baptism. It says, there is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Then in parentheses, listen, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God. That's what it is. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 3.21. So, water publicly declares, I am a Christian, I'm going under the water, dying to the old man, coming up in the newness of life. That's all it says. That water forgave no sin at all. None whatsoever. Now still other people believe because they have uh, never committed certain sins, they're good people, and they will also be in heaven. They live very moral and ethical lives. They've been faithful to remain sexually pure till marriage. They are faithful and loyal husbands and wives. But the scripture says they have all turned aside. <clears throat> they have all together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. And the word unprofitable is the word that is used for rotten produce. Romans 3.12, it's quoting Psalm 53.3. If you ever worked in the produce market or in the store, you know that there's only one thing that, that you don't get credit on, produce. It's perishable. You dent a can, you pop one of the lids off of a bottle, you just keep the cap and they'll credit you. Not produce. Rotten produce, what's it good for? Throw it away. It's good for nothing. That's the word. Until we are convinced of that, then we don't believe that we need to be justified in Christ alone. Jeremiah 79 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doing. That's what we have to be convinced, persuaded by the Spirit of God, not by man. So the confession of Paul in contrast to the righteousness of the Judaizers, he surpasses them. <laughs> he surpasses them. Notice secondly in 5 and 6, <clears throat> the credentials of Paul in comparison now to the righteousness of the Judaizers given to us, in verse 5, the Apostle Paul described the credentials he inherited, those handed down to him, uh, and he acquired them that way. Um, there's also merited ones that we'll get to. Altogether, there are seven of them. Um, first, Paul says he was circumcised the eighth day, indicating his lineage from birth. These, this he inherited. 
The covenant was given to Abraham, as you know, being 100 years old, back in Genesis 17, 12 through 13. In Leviticus 12, 3 speaks of being circumcised the eighth day. Every child had to be circumcised on that day, born in the house or bought. This was an everlasting covenant given, by the way, to Israel, not to the Gentiles. Okay? That's a covenant for Israel. Genesis 17, 12, 13 gives you that, as well as Leviticus. This was the seal of righteousness by faith, Paul tells us in Romans 4, 11. This represented the cutting away of the flesh life. Remember that Abraham received this covenant after he went into Hagar sexually and had an Ishmael. Trusting himself, his flesh to produce the heir. God says, not, not the one I promised you. So we're going to just give you a covenant to remind you that flesh cannot produce spirit. And the things that I promise. Wow. Now this is opposed to the Gentile proselytes. There were those who were proselytes of the gate. In contrast to God-fearers who followed only the ceremonial and dietary law and the ritualistic aspect of the law, but those proselytes of the gate, they also got circumcised. These proselytes of the gates, they might have been 18, 20, 25, 50 when they did that. They're distinct from the eighth day. That was the Jewish standard. By the way, that's when a baby's blood coagulates it peaks on the eighth day. How interesting. They used to do it all the time, the eighth day. But now with medicine, they do it right away and give the kid a shot. Because they're lazy. They don't want to come back and do it on the eighth day. But they charge another $1,000 probably. This was opposed to Ishmael, who was circumcised at age 13. As well, all Arab boys. That's when they run away from home. Genesis seventeen twenty five. Remember, Ishmael was thirteen years. Difference. Wow. The father of Ishmael and Isaac was Abraham. Yes, the mother of Ishmael was Hagar, not Sarah. The promise was through Isaac and Sarah. Genesis. 17.1. Isaac was circumcised on the eighth day, not Ishmael. And so was every Jewish boy. Genesis 21.4. Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day. Remember, he went into the temple. Dedication. Wow. Paul said... He was of the stock of Israel next, indicating national purity now. The patriarchal descent to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Paul mentions the son of the bondwoman, Hagar. Ishmael was according to the flesh. The free woman, Sarah, according to the promise, produced Isaac in Galatians 4, 22 to 31. One's Mount Sinai, the law, the other, Jerusalem. 
We are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise by faith, Paul says in Galatians 3.29. And we are the children of promise as Isaac, Galatians 4.28. The patriarch Jacob received his new name, Israel, as he wrestled all night with Jesus, which means prince with God or governed by God, in Genesis 32.28. Remember the account of Jacob trying to get a good night's sleep before his brother Esau met him in the morning because he had stolen his birthright. He's all freaked out, and he's wrestling with Jesus that night. The wrestling gives the appearance that Jacob was victorious over God in Genesis. But Hosea gives us the commentary, Jacob was broken before God. Touching the hollow of his thigh, causing him to limp, having to depend and trust on God to defend him. Hosea 12, 3 through 4. Paul said... Next, that he was of the tribe of Benjamin, indicating his reputable ancestral heritage. These are incredible things that he's putting out there. Benjamin was Jacob's favorite son, born from Rachel at her death, remember, in Genesis thirty-five eighteen, Saul, the first king of Israel, was a Benjamite, 1 Samuel 9, 1 and 2. The Benjamites were mighty warriors, accurate. They could hit a mosquito a thousand yards with a slingshot left-handed and archers. Judges 20, verse 16, 1 Chronicles 8:40. Bad dudes. Benjamin was the only tribe to remain faithful with Judah. To Rehoboam when the ten tribes rebelled in 1 Kings 12, 21. Mordecai was a Benjamite who brought deliverance to Israel against Haman's plot in Esther 2.5. Benjamin and Judah returned to rebuild the temple after the Babylonian captivity, Ezra 4.1. A Benjamite. And then he says the Hebrew of Hebrew indicating his cultural purity. Though his parents were Jewish like many others, this indicates that though they lived in Tarsus, they retained their Hebrew and Aramaic language and the customs intact, not being Hellenized, Acts 21.40. They were not tainted by the Greek culture. He was educated by Gamaliel, observing all the dictates of the law, dietary, and the customs, Acts 22.3 tells us. In fact, Gamaliel had only one complaint. He couldn't find enough books to keep Paul busy. Quite um, Quite a resume. Then notice, those were the inherited ones. He had nothing to do with that. They just came to him through ancestry. Pure Jew. And then, 
at the end of 5 down to 6, the Apostle Paul described the credentials he merited. These are the ones that he attained by himself. Paul said concerning the law of Pharisee, indicating his religious devotion now. The word Pharisee, as you know, means separated one or separatist. There were no more than 6,000 at any one time who arose during the intertestamental period, the 400 years silence. The great synagogue was started and attributed to Ezra, Nehemiah, and others. They were devoted to the keeping of God's law through volumes of interpretations of the law, oral law, written law. The problem was that this interpretation, these volumes of the Mishnah and others, they became the fence. They said, okay, now we went into captivity because we disobeyed the law. The law is holy. So here, here's the law, my tablet. And we're going to interpret all this to one little commandment to 200 and some laws. And we're going to put all this fence around the law so that we don't break the law again. So gradually they started rationalizing, well, if the law is holy, but now this fence keeps us from breaking the law, then this becomes more holy. Right? Jesus says, you have heard has been said. That's the interpretations. I say to you. So you get ritual. You get ceremony. You get man's standards and not the word of God. Wow. Paul said he was uh, brought up in the strictest of our father's law, Pharisee, Acts 22.3. Paul believed in the resurrection and angels, not like the Sadducees. In fact, when they were trying Paul, Paul picked up on this and said, I'm here, we can question or the resurrection of the dead. And he got them all fighting in Acts 23.6 and walked away. <laughs> Paul told Agrippa, according to the strictest sect of our religion, I live a Pharisee, Acts 26.5. Paul was one of the few Pharisees that was a doer, but it was only outward, not inward. Okay. You may be religious outwardly, but the change hasn't come inwardly yet. Okay? Discipline comes from within. Regimentation comes from without. If you were in the service, you know what I'm talking about. Those men who were disciplined, they acted morally and everything when they were on leave. Those who were regimented, they only looked like they did while they were on base. Once they were out in the street, no way. There's a big difference. Outward, inward. Paul said, I advance in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation. 
being more zealous for the traditions of my father in Galatians 1.14. Now Jesus exposed the hypocrisy of many who were Pharisees because they worshipped the interpretations rather than God's word. They were not doers of it. Paul said next, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, indicating religious zeal now. These are things that he's done himself. He's earned himself. Paul consented and witnessed the stoning of Stephen in Acts 7, verse 57 and 58. It says, Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and they ran at him with one accord, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witness laid down his clothes at his feet of a young man named Saul. Saul was there giving consent to the stoning of Stephen. Paul killed Christians. Wow. In chapter 8, verse 1 through 3 of Acts, Paul persecuted the church in Jerusalem. It says, now Saul was consenting to his death, meaning Stephen. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea, Judea Samaria, except for the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church. He just destroyed it, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. That's how zealous he was. Paul was sold out to his Judaism, to his religion. Paul persecuted the church, even to Damascus. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he asked letters from them to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found anyone who were, listen, of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem, Acts 9, 1 and 2. Believers were called those on the way, You've heard of the church on the way? Van Nuys? That's where they get their name. On the way where? The way to heaven. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The first place they were called Christian was at Antioch, Acts eleven twenty six. To the temple, mob. Paul said, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prison both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness and all the counsel of the elders from whom I also received letters to be to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. To Agrippa in Acts 26, 9 through 11, he says, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being, being exceedingly enraged against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. You did not want to get on Paul's bad list. He was... Public enemy number one against Christians. No one like him. 
He told the Galatians, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. Galatians 1.13 But Jesus says, The gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Paul was a diamond in the rough. God saved him and turned his life around. Nobody wanted to have anything to do with Paul when he left Damascus and he scurried over to Jerusalem. Thank God for Barnabas. He took a chance on Paul and brought him to the disciples. <laughs> Paul said concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless, the last thing, indicating his social uprightness. This speaks of religious obedience, blameless, means irreproachable and faultless. Of course, he's speaking of outward obedience, of right living, not inward righteousness of the heart. He's religious. That's what's his standard. Not born again. The parable of the unforgiving servant shows the difference between what is portrayed outwardly and inwardly by his failure to remember and recognize how much he had been forgiven in Matthew 18, 21 through 35. As a master forgave him millions, and then he took his servant that owned just pennies and grabbed them and threw him in jail. The master said, you evil servant. I forgave you all that, and you dare throw him in jail? Wow. Outward, inward, big difference. Maybe you have um, inherited some very honorable and high credentials. You might have been born into a very wealthy and prominent family and society with a very good education. You might have a long line ancestry of purity in your family line. Now, all of these things can be of great benefit to you, to society, but they do not give you the standing before God. You must repent of your sins. That's offensive to people. Acts 3.19 puts it this way, repent therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out so that Times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Maybe you have um, merited many things in your life that remind you of all you have done and all that you have accomplished. You have disciplined your life to work your way through school all on your own. Commendable. You have volunteered to help widows and orphans and the needy. You have not compromised your morals or character in your personal life or work. What a valuable person you are for society and the world. But you still have to acknowledge that you're a sinner in need of salvation. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All is all. 
in Greek, Hebrew, Spanish, English, whatever. It's all. The standard of man differs depending on who we are judging. We can favor people. We compare people. We judge others' lives who fall in sin much harder than we judge our own life. Because my sin always looks a lot uglier on you than on me. People will say, oh, I just can't forgive myself. Shut up. You have no problem forgiving yourself. You might regret the consequences, but you don't have any problem forgiving yourself. What you don't like living with is the repercussions. Isaiah 64, 6 says, but we're all like an unclean thing. And all our righteousness are as filthy rags. We're all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. The word there for filthy rag is a menstrual garment. That's how bad our good is. Do you agree with God in that? Mm. The credentials of Paul in comparison to the Judaizers, he humbled them. (laughs) He smoked them. (laughs) But he's not depending on that, but he's showing them. You guys are amateurs. Notice third and last in verse 7. The conclusion of Paul in conjunction to the righteousness of the Judaizers here. The Apostle Paul acknowledged that the things gained to him before coming to Christ had value for men, but not before God. Listen to his words. But what things were gained to me? Paul understood that in spite of this impressive list of inheritance and accomplishments, they had no spiritual worth to be accepted by God. His lineage from birth, his national purity, his ancestral heritage, his cultural purity, his religious devotion and zeal, his social uprightness, zero. Worthless. Paul declared, all these things were of great value to me in a form of prestige at one time. That didn't make him so. But I believe they were. The word gain means to gain advantage. The word appears one other time in the letter. In Philippians 1.21 it says, For being present with the Lord, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Same word. The word is found one other time in the New Testament for money. Whose mouth must be stopped, who subvert whole uh, whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. Titus 1.11 Dishonest gain. 
The word but could be translated nevertheless, notwithstanding, or however. In other words, even though these inherited and merited things are commendable, honorable, and desirable by man, and even though they were also to Paul at one time, they were not. He saw them as fraudulent, counterfeits for the purpose of justification before God. Wow. Notice then Paul, the apostle here, acknowledged that these things were worthless in comparison to Christ and his righteousness. Listen to his words. These I have counted loss for Christ. Paul came to this personal decision on the Damascus Road, Acts 9. This was Paul's decision in the past and continued to be so in the present. The tense is the indicative perfect middle voice. The middle voice indicates he is the person involving in this conclusive decision and he made it in the past and it continues. He used to trust in these things, now he doesn't. He's bringing them up to show how deceived and evil the Judaizers are in trying to deceive others. And so Paul was assessing what was truly valuable before God in comparisons to what was not valuable at all for justification. Look at the word counted. It means to be to consider, to deem, to think, or to esteem. The tense is the indicative perfect middle voice. Literally, I have counted and continue to do so again. The idea is one of making a value judgment between two things. The clear understanding being that one thing is helpful and profitable, the other not at all. The word loss literally means damage. The word is similar to a bookkeeper's ledger where the accountant would erase the word gain or credit and write the words loss or debit. The word is used for the cargo that was worthless in comparison to the human life and the storm at sea in Acts 27, 21, and 22. Same word. They threw the stuff over because life is more precious. Wow. All these things Paul had just mentioned add up to nothing of value before God for justification or salvation. They get in the way of trusting the righteousness of Jesus alone for salvation and damage the soul. Human works. So Paul saw the righteousness of a man and of God as a ledger of profit and losses, assets and liabilities. Wow. You guys remember the rich young ruler? What did he say to Jesus? Good teacher, good master. What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Doing. Jesus says, I've done this since my youth, all of them. You lack one thing. 
Go sell all that you have, give to the poor. And the commentary says, and he walked away sorrowful because he had many riches. God put his finger on his God. His wealth. Not that he couldn't be saved. By the way, it says, and Jesus loved him. Hmm. It's like using counterfeit money. <laughs> it's worthless. The Bible makes no exception. Every person must see their own measure of righteousness as worthless in comparison to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Commending ourselves by the works and things we do to be accepted by God is deceptive. There is nothing worse with doing evil, but there also is nothing wrong with doing good. It serves and benefits society, but once again, not before God for justification. Comparing ourselves to others is not a true comparison because it is not man that we are to be accepted by, but God. By the way, I will always compare myself to someone worse than me. Never someone better, because then I'll look bad. Well, I, I, don't, I don't yell at my wife. See, we always compare ourselves to, to and, and even in that, it's false because we're probably guilty of that also. Coming to the conclusion that I am lost, depraved, and an enemy of God that is hostile towards him in need of salvation by the justification of Jesus Christ is the only one thing that God will accept for my justification. Nothing else. Ephesians 2, 1 and 3 puts it this way. And you, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as others. That's the definition of every human being until they're born again, justified by Christ. See, the Bible says that our justification by Christ is sufficient and adequate for every sin committed against God and man. For lies and deception, for evil thoughts and deeds and words, for stealing and defrauding, fornication and adultery, for divorce and remarriage, for good moral people, for everything. That's why Paul says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation. For everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It is written, the just shall live by faith. Romans 1, 16 and 17. There's the gospel. There's your justification. And so the conclusion of Paul in conjunction to the righteousness of the Judaizers he rejected them. <laughs> Absolutely. So, 
This is Paul's autobiography of his past life before Christ regarding his righteousness to stand justified before God that at one time he trusted. And now he characterizes it by these three things. The confession of Paul in contrast to the righteousness of the Judaizers, he surpassed them, he said. The credentials of Paul in comparison to the righteousness of the Judaizers, he humbled them. And the conclusion of Paul in conjunction to the righteousness of the Judaizers, he rejected them. That's the bottom line. Wow. It's going to be interesting being able to talk to Paul in heaven. (laughs) Habakkuk, Micah, Obadiah. Read some of these books. When you get up there, you say, you know, I read your book. They come out and say, uh, or you say, who, who are you? He said, well, I'm Obadiah. Oh, who? Well, you didn't read my book. Are you in the Bible? It's only 66 books, ladies and gentlemen. God could have given us a Bible with 10,000 books. He didn't. From one chapter to 48 chapters to 66 chapters. Start with a small one. Move through the big ones. Lord, thank you for your grace, your love, and your goodness. We love you. We thank you. Thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. Lord, you take us. You cleanse us. You make us new. You pour your grace and mercy upon us, Lord. We thank you. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. You might be out there hearing somewhere in the world. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, know that he died for your sins and he rose from the dead. He is God who became man and he alone can forgive you of your sin and transform your life by giving you a new heart. It's called repentance, seeing yourself as a sinner before God in need of a Savior and that he paid the price on the cross as God the Father poured his wrath upon him and then raised him from the dead. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. If you want to be born again, if you believe that you are a sinner, is by the grace of God, then this is your prayer to him. Not to us, but to him right now. Whether you're over the internet, the radio, or here. This is your prayer. Father, I come to you. In Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.